Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 19 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. I'm feeling a lot better than you or at least um, not as cool and husky (laughs) but uh, more healthier. Husky's the word, yeah. I'm a little rough around the gills but we will push through. Flemmy. (laughs) I was going to re-record my answering machine messages and you said no. no. It's not flem, doesn't ever sound good. (laughs) But we will push through. We have some Patreon shout-outs this week, Chloe. We do. Welcome and thank you to Lilix Wenek, Christine Allen and Bobby Burrell. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we're talking about today is haunting and not particularly well-known outside South Australia, or well-covered for that matter. But it's equal parts terrifying, sickening and frustrating. Unlike the family murders case last week, this one is solved – But there is a sense of injustice or a lack of complete resolution with this case too, just in a different way. The case isn't half as well known as that which happened in the Belangelo State Forest back in the late 80s, early 90s. But there's just as many victims who lost their lives in the series of murders we're discussing today. And unlike the tall, imposing, evergreen pines flocking Belangelo, our backdrop today is the harsh red desert of remote South Australia – near a godforsaken swampland where very few people go. Nineteenth of february nineteen seventy seven. Princes Highway near Kingston, South Australia. The weekend had not gone to plan. James had wanted to take Deborah away, get her mind off her recent breakup, and Chris to enjoy himself too. Have a few drinks, maybe a few less than usual, but a few all the same. The first night had gone well. Chris was his usual self and had enamoured Deborah with his charms, eventually convincing James to take a walk at one point. James, aware of his mate's kinks and Deborah's susceptibility post relationship, quietly reminded Chris that people knew the three of them had made the trip to Mount Gambia. Whether that was the catalyst for Chris's later black mood, James wasn't sure. 
but it was upon them the next morning. James and Deborah awoke to find Chris plied with alcohol, storming around the house and scowling at any attempted interaction with him. The trio packed up and headed back to Adelaide, with Chris insisting he drove their 1969 white Chrysler Valiant. James had tried to calm him down and drive the vehicle himself, but Chris was beyond help when he was like this. He'd been like this since he'd gotten out of prison, and James had noticed it getting much worse lately. Chris called the shots. He relegated James to the back seat, swearing at him viciously if he interjected at all, and Deborah was to sit in the front, mainly to hold Chris's bottle of beer. Deborah became increasingly scared as Chris drove at high speed, tearing around bends and flooring the Chrysler along straight open stretches. Please, just slow down, I don't want to die, Deborah said. I've got a headache, you stupid bitch. Shut up, Chris replied. James had his head in his hands, hoping it would all calm down when they got closer to Adelaide. But then, Deborah snatched Chris's bottle of beer from his reach. He immediately snatched it back, veering off the road, and scowled at her. You think I'm stupid? Think I don't know how to drive? Just shut up, will you? Shut your damn mouth. I'm trying to drive here. It was at this moment that the front tyre blew out. The car began fishtailing, veering into oncoming traffic. With the truck thundering towards them, James watched from the back seat as Chris tried to correct the car from its path and narrowly avoided the oncoming vehicle. The only place to go was off-road. The Chrysler careered off the Princess Highway, flipped and rolled down an embankment, where all three of the occupants were thrown from the vehicle. Chris and Deborah died at the scene. James suffered a broken shoulder, but lived. Weeks later after his recovery, James attended Chris's funeral, where afterwards at the wake, he saw Chris's girlfriend Amelia, and they spoke about his autopsy. A blood clot? On his brain, Amelia quizzed after James informed her. He nodded. He had these dark moods. I'd been trying to get help, but I think the clot might have been what drove him to do what he did. Amelia shook her head. What did he do? He had to die, Amelia. It would have kept on happening, James said. What did he do, James? Around two months earlier, on the 23rd of December 1976, Christmas Eve, 18-year-old Veronica Knight was planning to go to Melbourne for the upcoming Christmas holiday period. Veronica had a tough childhood. Her mother had died when she was young, and her father was an alcoholic and couldn't care for her, so Veronica had spent the majority of her short life in care at Brighton's Minder home, and she'd been held back in her education too as a result of this earlier instability. For the past two years of her life, Jeanette and Peter Woods were the closest thing Veronica Knight ever had to her family. The Woods first met Veronica in 1974 when she was age 16. They met at an Anglican church youth group and they were instantly enamoured with her. For the next two years, they grew close. The pair were Veronica's informal foster parents, mentoring and guiding her through her final teenage years as she grew into a confident but shy young woman. And the Woods had recently moved to Melbourne. Veronica was planning to visit them on her trip in a few days' time, before she left for an overseas work posting. So Veronica had found some happiness, stability and inner peace in recent times. And on this Christmas Eve, she was making the most of the late night Christmas shopping at the City Cross Arcade in Adelaide. 
searching for some last-minute gifts with a friend of hers. And at some point during the shop, she became separated with her friend. Veronica disappeared that evening and was last seen at a King William Street bus stop. She was reported missing within 24 hours, but because of her plans to head to Melbourne, the police and many others hypothesised that she'd simply left earlier than planned and decided to hitchhike to Melbourne rather than catch her pre-planned train ride in the following days. Peter and Jeanette Woods weren't so convinced, particularly when Veronica didn't arrive to see them. But it seems the police at the time thought she was 18, an adult, and had the free will to choose what she did and where she went, and they chalked her up as a missing person and likely a runaway. Ten days later, on the 2nd of January 77, 15-year-old Tanya Kenny had just arrived in Adelaide after hitchhiking from nearby Victor Harbour. She stayed with friends there over the Christmas holiday period and had come back to Rundle Mall to do some shopping, This is where she was last seen. When she didn't return home that evening, Tanya's parents initially innocently thought she'd probably stayed at a friend's house for the night. But when she didn't return home the following day, their worry turned to panic and they reported their daughter missing to the police. So we have two girls missing now within two weeks, but the disappearances are not connected by the police. Julie Makita came from a good family who were involved in their theatrical arts and she'd been raised with strong values and her parents trusted her judgement. She was a student at Marsden High School and had taken a job in the holidays selling jewellery from a curbside stall in the city. On the 21st of January 1977, Julie had finished work and called her parents to tell them she was on her way home, running a bit late, but not to worry. She was waiting at a bus stop on King William Street near the Ambassador's Hotel, and this would be the last time Julie Makita was seen. By midday the next day, Julie's family had contacted all of her friends when she hadn't returned home. Initially, they were annoyed because it was unlike Julie to act like this. But that frustration soon turned into extreme worry, and her father Mick reported Julie missing to the police. Here's a clip of Mick explaining the reaction he got upon reporting his daughter missing. I got the usual story of I had a dollar for every worrying parent whose child hasn't come home for a while I'd be a rich man and all that sort of thing so they didn't really take us seriously but I think by the third day we knew that something was very very seriously wrong. So we can see here that these young women are all daughters, sisters, you name it. They had families who cared about them but I think it's important to point out Chloe that there's just not a whole lot of information out there about who these women were and that's a sad thing as we move along here But it's important to point out so that even with the little we know about them, we don't forget who they were to their families and undoubtedly many more. On the 6th of February 1977, 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman was waiting for a train at the Adelaide station, but she didn't reach her destination. This was the last place she was seen. When she didn't return home or contact any of her family or friends, her parents, Marguerite and Andreas, reported her missing, going to great lengths thereafter to try and find their daughter. Their efforts were fruitless and they'd find no trace of where Sylvia might have gone or what might have happened to her. Then, within 24 hours, 26-year-old Vicky Howell was last seen outside the Adelaide Post Office on the 7th of February 1977. She had been in an unhappy marriage and going through a tough period in her life. Then, within 48 hours, on the 9th of February, 16-year-old Connie Iordanides, also known as Connie Jordan to her friends, 
goes missing from the Adelaide CBD while waiting for a friend with whom she was planning to go to the movies. Her parents, Iordanus and Georgia, reported her missing to police. But police, despite this being the sixth young woman reported missing within six weeks, still didn't connect the dots. But Connie Jordan wouldn't be the last missing woman on this list. Three days later, on the 12th of February 1977, Deborah Lamb was hitchhiking on West Terrace when she was picked up. Deborah was engaged to be married. She was a mother. She wasn't someone on the fringes of society. So when she wasn't seen again, she was obviously reported missing too. And I think this is worth touching on. It's a bit baffling to think these women in such a short time frame weren't linked, even considering that it was 1977. Serial killing admittedly wasn't as common and still becoming known to an extent, but it had occurred in Australia and was quite prevalent overseas by this time. And particularly when you consider these women all went missing from a concentrated area too. It's not like there was potential jurisdictional issues to be dealt with. This was one city within a two-month period. But knowledge, policing technique, technology, victimology and offender psychology wasn't back then what it is today. In fairness, it's easy to sit behind a computer now in 2019 and critique this. But in reality, who knows what potential hurdles the police might have been dealing with. We're going to fast forward in time now to around 14 months later. And on the 25th of April 1978, Bill Thomas and his wife Velda were out mushrooming in a remote bushland area along Swamp Road near Truro in South Australia. Swamp Road splits a huge floodplain into two paddocks, flocked with trees and low-lying scrub. The area is full of mosquitoes and frogs. It's not an overtly human-friendly location. You'd be forgiven for thinking humans had never been there if it wasn't for the barbed wire fencing still erect in spots. But it's certainly a remote and desolate area that would be hard-pressed to visit without a specific purpose in mind. And I suppose mushrooming was that specific purpose for the Thomases. While they were scouring the area for mushrooms... Bill had spotted a bone attached to a shoe that at the time he thought to be the leg of a deceased cow, perhaps someone having a bit of a sick joke sticking the bone in there. I haven't seen a cow wearing shoes before and evidently neither had Bill. The image lingered in his and Val's conscience for about five days until the whole situation got the better of them and they returned to the area on Anzac Day for another look. The couple found the bone and the shoe again after some searching around Bill turned over the bone and saw human skin and a toenail painted with nail polish. The Thomases had a quick look around the area and they eventually stumbled across more human remains and other clues. A skull, other bones, a blood stain on the ground and some items of clothing. Bill and Valda contacted the police immediately. Police attended the site after the Thomases' call and combed the area thoroughly. They found personal items scattered about the place that would lead to the identification of the victim. The woman was identified as 18-year-old Veronica Knight and it was obvious to police that she'd met with foul play. But the scene yielded few clues as to who the perpetrator might be and if you consider the passage of time between when Veronica went missing some 14 months earlier, the forensic value of the remains would have been minimal in terms of clues linking to a potential suspect. And as we alluded to, this area was a soggy paddock. It was a swampland and it was actually quite a way out of the township of Truro. This area didn't really connect to the town of Turo at all. 
Tarot just happened to be the closest recognisable township at the time when reporting this grisly discovery. But there would have been no reason for people to go to the area and no reason at the time for police to suspect that there'd be any more bodies there because they hadn't connected the dots of the aforementioned missing women by this time. Despite it seeming to police that Veronica had been murdered, no clues pointed them in any solid direction to pursue this hypothesis. It was therefore put forward at the time that maybe she'd become lost out in the remote area having gone for a hike and perished from dehydration, her remains subsequently ravaged by wildlife. And I suppose when you factor the crimes police had on their plates during this time, I mean, we've covered many this season already, Chloe, that alone gives some insight into this dark period that South Australia was experiencing. And not all of those examples are well known or reported about, One example being another missing woman named Maria Dickinson. Maria disappeared in early 1978, probably around the time the Thomases discovered Veronica Knight's remains. In late 1978, her skeletal remains were found near Murray Bridge, east of Adelaide. Examination results concluded she'd been shot through the head. And there's not much else we can tell you about that crime. It makes you pause and think about the many others, not just this era, but even nowadays, that are either underreported or simply not reported at all. This next example is a heinous crime that, once again, like that of Maria Dickinson, highlights the darkness of this period in time and what police were dealing with. But it would be this next crime, a murder that remains unsolved to this day, while unrelated to the case we're covering, would end up steering police back in the direction of Truro. On Wednesday the 1st of March 1978, around 20 to 7 in the evening, 19-year-old Lena Marciano had jumped on her Honda motorcycle and departed from her home in Wayville in Adelaide's inner south. Lena was heading to Nailsworth Primary School, about a 10-kilometre ride, where she was planning to attend a Greek dancing class. Unfortunately, Lena didn't make the class or returned home later that evening. Her family, understandably beside themselves with worry, reported her missing immediately as it was quite out of character for her. Sadly, Lena's body was found four days later at a rubbish dump in the Adelaide suburb of Dry Creek. She was bound, gagged and wrapped in a brown curtain. She had been strangled with a hot track road racing set cord, bludgeoned with multiple blows to the head, strangled, stabbed in the heart and had several fingers broken. Police examining Lena's body ascertained she had died in a frenzied attack with stab wounds and blows, which both would have been fatal. Her motorcycle was found in the KFC restaurant car park opposite Nowsworth School, indicating she had arrived for the dancing class and been attacked shortly thereafter. This was a heinous, callous and brutal crime that is unsolved to this day. As deep as the police probed, they found nothing to connect a suspect to Lena's murder. But what detectives did notice somehow while mapping out the clues from this crime was that seven young women, all between 15 and 25 years old, had gone missing over a 52-day period from Adelaide between late 1976 to early 1977. And I think it was the reports of Lena being missing initially that caused police to go back and look over the missing persons cases prior to the discovery of her body. They were now beginning to piece things together, thinking perhaps Veronica Knight's murder and that of Lena Marciano and Maria Dickinson were potentially related. But despite this inkling, there'd be nothing concrete for police to go on once again. No leads, no reports, tips, forensic clues pointing them one way or another, 
There was a sketch made of a person of interest in Lena's murder case that was released to the public, but it yielded no results. And it wouldn't be until almost a year later, on the 15th of April 1979, that four young bushwalkers would be traipsing through the wetlands around Swamp Road, about a kilometre from where the Thomases had made their gruesome discovery, that these bushwalkers too would come across more skeletal remains. The police attended the area again and alarm bells well and truly ringing now. Their search of the scene would discover jewellery and clothing leading to the identification of Sylvia Pittman, who had gone missing around Christmas 1976, just weeks after Veronica Knight had disappeared. When the second one was found, it seemed logic that other bodies may well have been dumped in the Truro area. And we decided then that we would start a search of the area to see if any other bodies uh, were up there. Police soon discovered a further two sets of remains who'd be identified as 16-year-old Connie Iordanides, who'd been waiting for her friends to go to the movies in Adelaide, and 26-year-old Vicky Howell, who was last seen outside the Adelaide post office. So police had four bodies discovered in this area now. It looked like a serial killing at that stage, probably. You have to expect that a serial killer um, has habits that they tend to follow. Um, They find an area where they think it's safe to dump the bodies. It becomes almost ritualistic. So police began pouring through the missing persons reports again, reigniting their belief that this spate of young women who had gone missing from around this time frame were all likely to be linked and victims of an unidentified serial killer. But there was one glaring aspect that stood out to police. There'd been a decline in missing persons reports since this time in early 1977. So the question was, why had it stopped? There was a good reason for it, a reason that would become clear only a month or so later in May of 1979, when reports of these remains being discovered out near Truro would surface in the media. A woman initially named Angela, who we'd later discover was really named Amelia, came forward to police after hearing or seeing these reports about the remains at Truro. Amelia said that she knew a man who might be able to help police with their investigation. This man's name was James Miller. He was known to police, having spent many years in jail for essentially theft-related offences. The guy was a career crook, but not a known violent offender. Amelia said that Miller had confided in her some details about the man who she'd been dating in 1977. And this man was named Christopher Worrell. And Amelia knew James Miller as Chris's best friend. Even if it was a seemingly odd pair, Miller was old enough to be Worrell's father. But tragically, at the time for Amelia, her boyfriend Chris had died in a freak car accident on the 19th of February 1977 when he, Miller and another friend named Deborah Scoose had flipped and rolled the vehicle they were driving after suffering a tyre blowout. All three had been ejected from the white Chrysler Valiant. Chris and Deborah died instantly. However, James Miller survived with a concussion and a broken shoulder. At Worrell's funeral a few weeks later, Miller said to Amelia that his deceased mate, her boyfriend, 
had done some terrible things, and he had to die or it would have kept on happening. Amelia pressed for answers, and Miller is said to have told her what happened during Worrell's dark moods, and that several bodies were buried near Blanchetown. Amelia didn't know where this area was exactly until the reports of the remains being discovered appeared to be near where Miller had stated. Amelia said, I only had suspicions, but suspicions aren't enough to go to the police. I had no facts. I suspected that it was truth, and I didn't want to go to the police. She added that Miller reportedly told her the victims were just rags and not worth much, implying that one of them had even enjoyed it. I did the driving and went along to make sure nothing went wrong, Miller allegedly told Amelia. They had to be done in so they would not point the finger at us. If you don't believe me, I will take you to where they are. It was getting worse lately. It was happening more often. It was perhaps a good thing that Chris died. Amelia stated she hadn't come forward because, until the reports, she was unsure if it was true. She didn't want to dob anyone in, and ultimately, Worrell was now dead. So what good would it do? If anything, James Miller would just be used to pin it on. So the police had their first real lead in what was shaping to be a hideous case of multiple unsolved murders that had occurred right under their noses two years ago, with an alleged prime suspect who was now deceased but they had to find James Miller first. They knew he'd hung around in the Adelaide area because they found a memorial notice Miller had put in the newspaper for his departed friend on the first anniversary of his death. It read, Worrell Christopher Robin, memories of a very close friend who died 12 months ago this week. Your friendship and thoughtfulness and kindness, Chris, will always be remembered by me, mate. What comes after death, I can hope, as I pray we meet again. So they knew from this that he was around Adelaide, and they didn't really have to look too hard before they found him. Miller was living on the breadline, pauperised without a red cent, eking out an impoverished existence by doing the occasional job at Adelaide's central mission in exchange for food and board. He was nearly 40, with thinning, slicked-back light brown hair, a crooked nose, beady eyes, and a face like a dropped pie. He had the ordinary and weathered exterior of a labourer and career petty criminal who didn't look after himself. 24-7 covert surveillance was put on Miller, but when he became surveillance aware at one point, he made a break for it on foot. Police intercepted, picked him up and dragged him in for questioning on the 23rd of May 1979. But other than what Amelia had reported, Police didn't have any physical evidence to connect Miller to these remains found and the alleged series of murders. Detective Sergeant Glenn Laurie and Detective Peter Foster of the Major Crime Squad had to get a confession from Miller, or at least the locations of more bodies. If they failed in that endeavour, they ran the risk of James Miller walking free. So they went gentle to begin with, then pressed a little harder after Miller denied any knowledge of the women or alleged murders. He even skirted around the subject of even knowing who Amelia was to begin with. But it all came flooding back to Miller when the detective showed him photos of Amelia with his dearly departed friend Worrell. Then the detectives put the accusations to Miller that Amelia had levelled at him and Worrell. Miller's first reaction, being accused of murder, was defensive. He cited the $30,000 reward on offer for any information leading to a conviction, suggesting that maybe Amelia was short of money. Detective Laurie replied, Do you really believe that? Is that what you want me to tell the court? Miller said, no. On second thoughts, maybe she's done what I should do. Can I have a few minutes to think about it? The detectives gave him a minute and then, after six long hours of tedious interviewing the unremarkable former thief, 
they got a break when James Miller said, If I can clear this up, will everyone else be left out of it? I suppose I've got nothing else to look forward to whatever way it goes. I guess I'm the one who got mixed up in all of this. Where do you want me to start? Miller made a statement detailing the modus operandi that he and his younger but dominant friend had employed over the summer period of 76-77. Miller said, I drove around with Chris and we picked up girls around the city. Chris would talk to the girls and get them into the car and we would take them for a drive and take them out near Truro. Chris would rape them and kill them. But you've got to believe that I had nothing to do with the actual killings of those girls. He went on to say that whenever he interjected and protested about how wrong it was, Worrell would come at him with a knife and threaten to kill him too. Detective Laurie, intelligently feigning sympathy, said to Miller that he understood that he was hopelessly in love with Worrell and that he could see how he would do anything for him. The ploy worked. Miller's guard went down and he opened up further to the detectives. All right then, there's three more, I'll show you. It was 10.30 at night by this point and Detectives Laurie and Foster were undoubtedly tired and relieved with the night's events to this point. But their night wasn't over. They organised to drive James Miller there and then out to Truro, Port Gawler and the Wingfield Dump under heavy escort, where he proceeded to identify the locations of more remains. Truro lies in the Mount Lofty Ranges between the Barossa Valley and the Riverlands of the Murray. And as we alluded to earlier... The area where Miller and Worrell had disposed of the women's bodies, where Veronica Knight and Sylvia Pittman had been discovered, was actually tens of kilometres away from Truro. But despite these murders being unrelated to the Truro township, the media at the time saw Truro as the nearest town recognisable to the public. So unfortunately for this scenic little South Australian place, it would be thrust into the spotlight and remembered for reasons it truly didn't deserve. So right off the bat, the detectives aren't really buying James Miller's story that he, a nearly 40-year-old man, was so petrified of this young buck who was 14 years his junior that he'd simply driven the car and gone along with the axe out of fear for his own life. It was also a stretch to believe seven seemingly upstanding young women would get into a car with two complete strangers when in most instances they had something else they were planning on doing. For example, Deborah Lamb was engaged to be married... Julia Makita was on her way home and Connie Jordan was waiting for a friend to go to the movies. All unlikely to have simply met Worrell, no matter how good looking or charming he was, and abandoned everything else on a whim. So it seemed more likely to police that Miller and Worrell had abducted these girls together and Miller had probably helped more during the attacks too. Maybe held the victims down or helped tie them up before Worrell raped and murdered them and the pair disposed of the bodies thereafter. Worrell was dead now and although it was obvious that Miller had some sort of deep-seated infatuation with the younger man when he was alive, self-preservation was probably steering Miller's radar now. So, who were these two guys? James Miller was born on the 2nd of February 1940 by the name of Melvin Raymond Jus. He changed it to James Miller, which coincidentally was the name of the founding father of Truro. Christopher Worrell was born on the 17th of January 1954, 14 years Miller's junior. James Miller had spent the majority of his life in jail prior to meeting Christopher Worrell. Miller had five siblings, but despite this, had no real friends. He matured into a penniless social outcast for the most part. When he was 11 years old, he was sent to McGill Reform School, 
education wasn't readily available to or absorbed by Miller, so he turned to petty theft to make ends meet and did some unskilled manual labouring on occasion too. His criminality would remain a constant over the years. Miller would be convicted on more than 30 occasions for car theft, numerous forms of larceny and breaking and entering and stealing, but he never committed or was alleged to have committed a violent or sexual offence, something he would constantly emphasise later when speaking with police about the Turo murders. Miller was doing a three-month stretch in Adelaide jail for breaking into a firearms dealership. This is when he met Christopher Worrell. Worrell was on a two-year suspended sentence for armed robbery when he was arrested and charged for rape. James Miller was gay. I'm not sure that he was openly gay considering the time and him being a career criminal, but he was instantly captivated and besotted by the younger prisoner. Worrell was a 20-year-old, physically fit and striking young man with long dark hair and dark features. He and Miller quickly became friends, and soon after they were sharing a cell. They were an odd couple on the surface. When Worrell was sentenced, he got four years for rape and two for breaking the suspended sentence. The sentencing judge commented that Worrell was a depraved and disgusting human being. The pair were individually transferred to Yadala Prison until Miller was ultimately released after serving his three-month sentence. But during this time, their friendship and bond grew. Worrell told Miller that he had never known his real father, and when he was six years old, his mother married his stepfather. He also said that he had served time in the Royal Australian Air Force. So Miller was out, but seemingly missing his new friend so much that he wanted to be back inside with him. Miller quickly got his wish when he was sentenced to 18 months back at Yadala for stealing 4,000 pairs of sunglasses and attempting to pawn them to travellers at hotels around the city. The next few years would be the self-described best years of James Miller's life, when he was able to grow more and more closer with Worrell. Around two and a half years later, the pair reunited on the outside. Miller had completed his sentence and Worrell had got early parole for good behaviour. And this is despite him being known as the slut of Yadala, for how free he was with giving his body to other men. Evidently, that was still within the definition of good behaviour. Miller was living with his sister, she was married and they had two young girls. Worrell regularly visited Miller at his sister's house. By December 1976, they were sharing a flat in Ovingham and working together as labourers on the Unley local council. Miller, who was a submissive in this pair despite being Worrell's senior by 14 years, regularly performed oral sex on Worrell under instruction as he read BDSM magazines. Miller would do literally anything for Christopher Worrell. He was completely obsessed with him. That didn't mean things were always harmonious between the pair. It was quite turbulent at times due to Worrell's dark and moody personality. He would regularly fly off the handle into bouts of inexplicable anger over seemingly the smallest and unimportant thing. Miller would eventually whittle away through the young man's tempered exterior and persuade him to calm down, but it often took a while. But despite their relationship and Worrell's history in prison... His sexual preference was for women. So this side of Miller and Worrell's relationship eventually subsided and it was said that they became more like brothers. But as we'll see, Worrell would end up referring to Miller as dad in part of their evolving ruse. Here's a clip of criminologist Alan Perry with his assessment of Miller and Worrell and their relationship. Everything about Miller's background suggests a uh, uh, passive, inadequate, mildly sociopathic personality, someone who found it difficult to form relationships with others. Worrell, um, on the other hand, 
had a, uh, uh, a much briefer antecedent history because he was much younger than uh, Miller. But his history reflects a, um, a very violent, unstable personality. Worrell had the capacity to love anyone, whereas Miller, uh, in his own sort of perverted and distorted way, I think actually thought he was in love with, uh, with Worrell. Worrell was around 23 by this time, a natural looker and charmer who could sell ice to the Eskimos. This certainly helped him when vying for female attention, and Worrell would develop an increasing sexual appetite to the point where a casual encounter was no longer enough. He now wanted to actively pursue women. And this is where it all began. Miller began driving Worrell around in his 69 white Valiant, and Worrell would approach and chat up girls from off the street, anywhere around town. Pubs, train stations, bus stops, shopping malls, you name it. The guy had no shame. Once he'd lured his prey, Miller would drive Worrell and his lady friend to a secluded location and go for a walk. Worrell would have sex with the women in the back of the car and often tie the girls up. Miller would give them time to finish before driving the girls back into town, dropping them off where requested. Miller put all of this information into a statement that he inevitably wouldn't sign, but he suggested this happened many times over and he had no idea Worrell was going to escalate to murdering these girls. So that's Miller's story. Once again, make what you will of that. I come back to the police's view that no matter how good Christopher Worrell was, it's very difficult to believe that so many women would go willingly with this guy they'd just met and his quote-unquote dad to a remote location, a lover's lane if you will, without any hesitation or resistance once they knew what was happening. And I think it's important to keep in mind here as we go along and tell the story of what happened to these young women, these recollections are from James Miller, through his filter. So while there might be elements of truth here, outside of the discernible facts, just how distorted these versions of events are, we'll never truly know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So by December of 1976, Miller and Worrell were living and working together and Miller was supporting and enabling Christopher Worrell's womanising. This had escalated to the point where every night now, Worrell had Miller driving him around town to pick up women. And it wasn't uncommon for Miller to sleep in his car overnight while Worrell stayed at the residence with his new girlfriend for the evening. So Miller was absolutely devoted to his friend's cause here, we can see. On Christmas Eve 1976, Adelaide shopping centres were rife with last-minute shoppers looking for last-minute gifts. Many of these shoppers were females, which gave Christopher Worrell an array of targets to approach. 
Worrell got out of the car and went for a trawl around Rundle Mall, directing an abiding Miller to go for a drive around the block a couple of times. Worrell was gone for some time before Miller circled back around to the front of the Majestic Hotel, where he picked up Worrell with 18-year-old Veronica Knight. She'd agreed to come along for a ride under the premise of getting a lift home from the friendly young man. On the drive, an anxious Miller made small talk and Worrell referred to the older man as Dad to put Veronica at ease. Soon into the drive, Worrell convinced Veronica to go for a drive with them into the Adelaide foothills to a spot called Windy Point. Miller pulled the car down an isolated dirt track, stopped the vehicle, and Worrell forced Veronica into the back seat. Veronica, by this point, was beginning to worry, and those feelings turned to dread when Miller went for a walk to allow Worrell and Knight some privacy. Worrell pinned Veronica down and tied her wrists with rope, raped her, and strangled her to death. When Miller returned half an hour later, Worrell was sitting in the front seat and the girl was lying motionless on the floor in the back. Worrell told Miller that he had just raped and murdered the girl. Miller apparently became extremely angry and grabbed Worrell by the shirt. You fool, you fucking fool, you want to ruin everything, Miller said to his younger counterpart. Worrell, unimpressed by Miller's grabbing him by the scruff, is said to have produced a long wooden handled knife and held it to Miller's throat at this point. He ordered the subservient Miller to let him go or he'd kill him as well. Worrell then told Miller that he'd killed a couple of female hitchhikers in Perth while in the RAAF and that he watched a friend drown to death when he was younger, that he could have helped his friend but didn't lift a finger, just watched him drown instead. Worrell then commanded Miller to drive to Gawler and towards Truro, a few kilometres further on. They drove down another isolated dirt track named Swamp Road and pulled over near some scrubland. Miller said, He asked me to give him a hand and carry her into the bushes. Her hands were tied. He always tied them. We got through the fence and dragged her under. Although Miller initially resisted, he claimed Worrell again threatened to kill him if he didn't help. They dumped Veronica's body and covered it with branches and leaves before heading back to Adelaide. The next day, the pair went to work, never discussing the murder, and Worrell's dark mood had turned light again, and he was back to his usual self. On the 2nd of January 1977, around 9am, Miller dropped Worrell off at the Rundle Mall again and agreed to pick him up at the other end. Miller waited for a short time and Worrell returned with 15-year-old Tanya Kenny, who had just hitchhiked up from Victor Harbour. They drove to Miller's sister's home in the suburb of Woodville. The house was unoccupied at the time, on the pretext of picking up some clothes. Worrell and Tanya went into the house while Miller waited in the car. Miller heard a stifled scream a little while later, and shortly after this, Worrell returned to the car and asked Miller for help. From the look on Worrell's face, Miller knew that something was drastically wrong. In the children's playroom, he found Tanya's body bound with rope and gagged with a piece of sticking plaster. She was fully clothed and had been strangled, a deep thin line around her neck indicating Worrell had used a guitar string or similarly thin type of wire to strangle her. Miller and Worrell had another violent argument. Again, Worrell threatened to kill him if Miller didn't help him dispose of the body, but Miller said they couldn't do it in daylight hours because they'd be seen. After hiding Tanya's lifeless body in a cupboard, Worrell and Miller returned later that night, put the body in the car and drove to Wingfield at the back of the Dean Rifle Range. Here they buried Tanya in a shallow grave they had dug earlier in the day. Miller maintained that he helped bury the body because he didn't want to get his sister involved. As they returned from this gruesome burial, 
Miller again had the chance to put things to an end by reporting what had transpired, but he chose not to, prioritising his friendship and infatuation with Worrell over the deaths of two young innocent women. Miller apparently tried to convince Worrell that he should see a doctor to figure out what was happening to him mentally to cause these dark moods and now two murders. But Worrell, as per usual it would seem, quickly shut down anything James Miller suggested, telling him it was none of his business. But despite a second victim now on their list and Miller's apparent protesting, the pair continued on searching for women every night, their hotspots being Rundle Mall, Adelaide train station and various hotels in the city, including the Mediterranean and Buckingham Arms hotels, both spots which we had heard about in last week's case. He maintained that he was just the chauffeur and the mug and never played an active part in coercing women into the vehicle, which might be the only truthful part of this story. Looking at pictures of Miller, I do struggle to think of a situation where anyone would voluntarily get into a car with just him. On January the 21st, 1977, the pair spotted 16-year-old Julie Makita sitting on the steps of the Ambassador's Hotel in King William Street. She was waiting for a bus at around 9pm, having just rang her parents to tell them that she was going to be a little late getting home and that they shouldn't be worried. It was then a supposedly charming Christopher Worrell offered her a lift. Miller said they then drove to a quiet spot on Port Wakefield Road where Worrell, in typical style, forced Julie into the back seat while Miller sat innocently in the front, awaiting instruction. At this time, Worrell attempted to tie Julie up and she resisted, but the bigger and older Worrell was just too strong. He simply overpowered her. None of this raised Miller's bushy eyebrows. Apparently, Worrell tying resisting women up was quite normal. It was his kink, and it had happened so many times before, ultimately with the women enjoying it. Miller eventually left the car and went for a stroll again, and it was during this innocuous stroll that Miller saw Julie running from the car and attempting to flee into the bush, but she didn't get far before Worrell caught up and tackled her to the ground. Worrell rolled her over with his foot, knelt on her stomach and strangled her with a length of rope. Miller claimed he grabbed Worrell's arm and tried to drag him off, but Worrell pushed him away and threatened to kill him if he interfered. Miller shook his head and walked away. When he came back, the body was already in the back of the car. Worrell was in a black mood and Miller did as he demanded. He drove the car to Truro but avoided going near the other bodies and went to a deserted farmhouse on a completely different track away from Swamp Road. They carried Julie's body into the trees and covered it with branches and leaves before returning to Adelaide. So Miller, by this point in the story, is very much painting the picture of being a subservient man under the thumb of a charismatic and psychopathic Christopher Worrell. Police, however, don't think this story is adding up that perhaps these walks were Miller's internal suppression mechanism, a euphemism for helping Worrell somehow or holding these women down. But they continue listening to his sordid retelling of events. 16-year-old Sylvia Pittman was waiting for a train at Adelaide Station on the 6th of February when Christopher Worrell approached her and offered her a lift. Miller drove them to the area of Windang, where the same series of events transpired. It was almost like a routine now. Miller left and went for a stroll. Worrell tied Sylvia up, his usual kink, before raping her and strangling her to death with her own pantyhose in the back seat. Miller returned a half an hour later to find Sylvia face down with a rug haphazardly thrown over her lifeless body. Miller appears to have become resigned to the fact that Worrell wouldn't talk about these events and simply followed orders from here. 
back out to Turo, dump the body in an isolated area, cover it with foliage. Only one day later on February the 7th, Worrell instructed Miller to come and pick him up from the Adelaide post office. When Miller arrived at around 7pm, Worrell was accompanied by 26-year-old Vicky Howell. Right off the bat, Miller said he got along well with Vicky. She was a bit older, and Miller said he felt like she was a good fit for Worrell. She might have helped ground him and set him on the right track. She'd been going through a rough patch, but seemed comfortable in their presence. Miller said he hoped things would go in a different direction with Vicky. They drove to Nuriotpa, where they stopped briefly and Vicky used the bathroom. They stopped again a short while on, with Miller this time needing the bathroom stop, and he headed into the bush to relieve himself. As we said, Miller was quite keen on Vicky, so he came back to the car to get his cigarettes, but in reality, he was checking to see that Worrell hadn't murdered her. They appeared to be getting on well, and Worrell wasn't showing any signs of his black moods that Miller had become an expert at spotting. But according to Miller, after he left the pair again, going for a short walk to nowhere in particular, he returned soon after to find Vicky strangled to death on the back seat, and Worrell covering her body with a blanket. Miller said he lost it at this point and launched a verbal tirade on Worrell, but his anger soon subsided and Miller went back to his passive self, asking Worrell why he'd killed this one. She seemed nice and Miller liked her. Worrell didn't respond and simply directed Miller back out to Turo. Miller obliged, apparently out of fear for his own life once again. So Worrell's lust was only being satiated for shorter and shorter periods now. In Miller's words, it was getting much worse. It'd only be two days before they committed their next murder. On February the 9th, The pair were again cruising the Adelaide CBD when they spotted 16-year-old Connie Iordanides, or Connie Jordan, apparently standing on the footpath laughing and giggling to herself. That description makes her sound a little deranged to me, but as we understand, she was waiting for a friend to go to the movies. Miller and Worrell pulled up and offered her a lift, and she got in, sitting between the two men. So this once again sounds suspicious, Miller's version of events. Why would she get in the car willingly, a 16-year-old young woman waiting for a friend to go to the movies, which were presumably nearby, for a lift to God knows where? Whatever really transpired, we may never know, but the following sequence of events and Connie's fate was ultimately a carbon copy of those before her. According to Miller, at some point she cottoned on to what was happening, became scared, Worrell raped and strangled her in the back seat, while an unwitting Miller wandered around aimlessly in the bush before the pair drove out to Truro and dumped yet another body, covering it with leaves and branches. The only point of difference was after this brutal murder, the pair decided to sleep in the car at Victoria Park Racecourse that night. So for all his worry about what Worrell was going to do with him should he put up any kind of protest, James Miller didn't seem too concerned with his own safety around Worrell. But three murders within a week wasn't enough for Christopher Worrell. The pair would add a fourth victim in the early hours of Sunday the 12th of February 1977. While trawling the area around the pinball arcades of the City Bowl, Miller dropped off a jubilant Worrell who apparently picked up 20-year-old hitchhiker Deborah Lamb, under the premise that they'd give her a ride. Deborah was heading to Port Gawla, to which the amiable Miller obliged and drove them there before he stopped the car and went on a trademark long walk of his. Worrell had achieved a similar result in a different way upon Miller's return, when he observed the younger man kicking dirt into a hole to fill it up. 
Deborah Lamb was nowhere to be seen, if you believe Miller, but one could only presume her body was beneath the surface. It was later deduced by a forensic pathologist, Dr Mannix, that it was possible that Deborah Lamb had been alive when placed in the grave. The sand and shell grit would have formed an obstruction to the airway and prevented air from entering the air passages, he said. He added that it was impossible to say this positively because of the advanced state of decomposition. Deborah had a pair of pantyhose wrapped several times around her mouth and jaw, and while Miller claimed to have never seen Deborah's body, he did later lead police to its location. At the end of his tale and police interrogation, Miller said to detectives Laurie and Foster, I know it might sound crazy after all this, I don't hold to murder. I really believe in the death penalty, an eye for an eye. Believe me, I wanted no part of this. It was like a nightmare. Each time we picked up one of those girls, I had no idea of his intentions. To police, there was no two ways about it. Miller, if his story was true, could have stopped at least six murders, but chose not to. That made him culpable and an equal part of a criminal enterprise. But Deborah Lamb wasn't Christopher Worrell's final victim. He reserved those spots for himself and another woman named Deborah Scuse. Miller, luckily or unluckily, depending on how you view it, managed to survive. On Saturday the 19th of February 1977, only one week after committing his last murder, Worrell, Miller and Deborah Scuse were returning from a weekend away in Mount Gambia. The weekend had ended early due to Worrell's sullen mood and excessive drinking. The pair had met Scoose through a friend, a bloke they'd been in jail with actually, and he'd been dating Scoose. It didn't end well, and Miller, who got along well with her, suggested this weekend away as a way of helping her move on with her life post-breakup. So they left late in the afternoon and Worrell was at the wheel after drinking several cans of beer, driving recklessly through countryside north of Millicent. We describe what transpired here in the intro, so we won't rehash those details, Suffice to say, Worrell's intoxicated state and erratic driving led them to a tyre blowout and subsequent horrific car crash that took Worrell and Scooter's lives, Miller escaping with a broken shoulder and a concussion. And it was a short time later at Worrell's funeral, which was a small affair, when Miller confided in Amelia about Worrell's pre-death murder spree and his innocent part in it all. Miller added that he thought Worrell had a blood clot on his brain and that was responsible for his black moods, which ultimately led to his killing spree. Apparently, Worrell's post-mortem had confirmed this detail about the blood clot, according to Miller. Amelia and Worrell had only been going together for a short time, so she was very upset by his loss and equally disturbed by Miller's accusation of a young man she thought was upstanding. It would be two years later, when reports of the four sets of remains being found at Turo surfaced and subsequent police appeals came out, that Amelia came forward to authorities with the tale that Miller had relayed at Worrell's funeral. Now, we have different versions of events as to what was said during this conversation, Miller's version and Amelia's version. We'll leave it to you which one to place more stock in. Amelia stated that Miller had told her the victims were only rags and weren't worth much and that they had to be done in so they could not point the finger at us. Miller denied ever saying this and put forward his own recollection of that conversation stating that after he'd spilled his guts to Amelia, she said to him, Shut up, Jim. Just keep your mouth shut about this, all right? There are lots of folks that get killed in South Australia without any help from our Chris, and I'm not having him made a scapegoat for everything bad that's happened here since the bloody British landed. You hear me? Keep your lips together and forget whatever you think you know. Like you said, Chris wasn't like that. 
He was a good man, one of the last of them. Understand? Miller claimed he said he did and nodded, to which Amelia then said, right, bugger off then, we're done. He further alleged that she'd only come forward for the reward money, but ended up conceding that she'd only done what he should have anyway. However you take all that, it is highly likely that these murders would have gone unsolved if Amelia hadn't come forward. Miller would later state that he would never have come forward and dobbed on Chris. He cared too much about him and his happiness. Even if the victim tally had reached 70, he wouldn't have told on him. Miller was charged with seven counts of murder. His trial took place in February 1980, where he pleaded not guilty to all seven counts. Miller's defence put forward a tale of a man who was criminally bound, almost under duress, to aid Worrell for fear of losing his own life. Defence counsel Mr KP Duggan QC implied Miller was indeed being used as a scapegoat. Quote, he was just waiting for Worrell and there was no joint enterprise as far as he was concerned. Miller had found himself in one of the oldest relationship problems in the world, that of the involvement in the wrongdoing of someone else. He was trapped in a web of circumstance. Although Miller admits that he handled the situation incorrectly, he maintains that he is not a murderer. Nevertheless, that was the angle the prosecution took, that James Miller and Christopher Worrell were part of a joint criminal enterprise. This way of prosecuting, this criminal enterprise, was generally speaking used more so in trials where there was an organised crime element, the law being one used to get mafia types tried for murder, even if they hadn't themselves pulled the trigger, for example. Miller sat silently throughout the trial as the prosecution attacked. This was a huge case in South Australia by this time. The media storm around it now was huge since the searches and discovery of the bodies out at Truro. Crown Prosecutor Mr BJ Jennings was ruthless in his delivery of the state's case, stating that Miller and Worrell had lived, worked and indeed committed murder together. He said it was a criminal enterprise and cited Miller's own alleged words. He referred to the girls as rags, that was the attitude that led him to throw in his lot with Worrell, he said. No rapist and murderer could have had a more faithful or obliging ally. Mr Jennings continued, You will never know the truth, but have no doubt that it is a horrible truth that these young women were murdered because they were going to point the finger at the young man who tied them up and sexually abused them. They could also point the finger at the older man who ignored their plight and their terror. If a man assists another by driving him to a place where a girl is going to be raped and killed, then he is guilty of murder. And the jury agreed with Jennings. On March 12, 1980, they found James Miller guilty of six counts of murder. He was found not guilty of the murder of the first victim, Veronica Knight, with the jury citing it was reasonable to infer Miller didn't know that Worrell intended to kill her that night. When Miller was taken from the courtroom, he yelled at Detective Laurie, calling him a liar and that he knew he, Miller, had never harmed any of the girls. Miller clearly felt wronged by the detective who had earned his trust during the interviews by building rapport and feigning sympathy. Miller, after a lifetime of deceit, had been deceived by the good guy, which clearly angered him. James Miller later said, They can give me life for knowing about the murders and not reporting them but they charged me with murder. It's a load of bullshit. Miller appealed and applied for a retrial as the years passed. A juror on the trial even pleaded Miller's case for a retrial. Ultimately, despite Miller's argument that he never engaged in any murders directly, didn't know or agree prior to going out cruising for women that he would support Worrell in the murders, 
the Attorney General denied a retrial for James Miller. As a result of this case, there were numerous debates in legal circles over the definition of a joint criminal enterprise. But in the end, with respect to the Truro case anyhow, they were largely resolved on the grounds of how horrendous the crimes were. And Miller himself would even say to other inmates during his time in prison that he and Worrell had a criminal pact of sorts, implying he knew what Worrell had planned and that he'd never have ratted on his young friend, who he dearly missed. Miller went on to write a book entitled Don't Call Me a Killer. We didn't read it, but there is an extract online. It's basically him trying to retell events surrounding what happened to the victims, painting himself in a better light than he was in reality. Miller was, in the end, given a non-parole period of 35 years, meaning he'd be due for parole in 2014. By that time, he was the longest-serving prisoner in South Australia, but he never made that date. Miller ended up being diagnosed with prostate and lung cancer that subsided after treatment, then recurred. It also became evident that he had contracted hepatitis C earlier in life. On the 22nd of October 2008, James Miller died of complications arising from hepatitis C, which had caused failure of his liver. It's commonly reported it was the cancer that killed him. Technically, that wasn't what the medical report said. But either way, one of these things would have got him in the end. Christopher Worrell was buried in Centennial Park Cemetery in Pasadena, South Australia, grave 1364. His headstone inscription reads, Untold love and joy he brought to all. Caustic and ironic final words to characterise a psychopath like him. This pair and the damage they caused is reprehensible. These murders are so scary because it could have been anyone and were committed by someone who was diagnosed and quite clearly a psychopath. These women were doing everyday things as well, waiting at bus stops, going to the post office, catching the train. These things that we do every day, that all of us do all the time, just living our lives. I find the theory that Worrell had a brain tumour that caused his black mood so gross, like a bad excuse. He obviously knew what he was doing and enjoyed causing pain and dominating people. I think you're going to cover a bit more about this in your thoughts, Sean, but I also don't buy that Miller was a helpless companion in all of this. One thing that stands out to me is the pickups that Miller facilitated. You don't drive your friend to secluded places to have sex with people, watch them escalate to rape and murder without doing anything or at least have a knowledge of it and not do anything. Despite how complicated their relationship clearly was, you don't stay part of something like that without also getting something from it. And to circle back around to the victims, I'm so sorry that they were plucked ruthlessly and murdered for no reason. Human life is so precious and that feeling is always amplified when you think about people who disregard its value so viciously. I think Worrell would have gone on to kill many more, but probably would have been caught eventually out of luck, stupidity on his or Miller's part. He was clearly escalating and the time between the murders was getting shorter providing him with less satisfaction each time. It's frustrating that he didn't get caught and tried for what he did, but also his premature death by his own hands may well have saved many lives. We'll never know. I have no sympathy for James Miller. He knew what was going to happen to those girls and he could have stopped it, but he didn't. He got what he deserved. I think he was equally of a twisted criminal mind, just without the overtly violent aspect that Worrell had. There were conflicting stories about Miller, one I came across saying that he'd actually been involved in a crime of sexually assaulting a younger boy. On a quick search, I couldn't corroborate that, but regardless, 
He was a guy who happily took what he wanted from people, stole from them and robbed them, and ultimately stood idly by as someone he loved murdered innocent people. So he was equally complicit and responsible. It's a very sad case, and the saddest of all for me is the lack of the victim's stories out there. But with that being said, I couldn't imagine being one of the surviving family members of these women that I would want to be splashing my lost loved one's stories across the pages of the tabloids. Time better spent cherishing their memories, I would think. But my heart goes out to them and the victims all the same. Yeah, totally agree. Um, well, let's move on to happy thoughts. And um, there's some Adelaide-related happy thoughts here, so hang around. <laughs> Anyone from Adelaide? <laughs> we'll make some stuff up to you in a bit. But what's your happy thought, Sean? Well, in addition to the wonderful coffee cup that you got me for my birthday, Chloe, which um, I posted a picture of on our Facebook page yeah. this week, Uh, My parents-in-law brought me a cool little takeaway coffee cup, a little trendy Frank Green one. So my mother-in-law, who's a big fan of the podcast, said I can now walk safely from my preferred coffee shop in South Melbourne without fear of reprise from rival baristas. So, <laughs> yeah, it's so was... funny. My cousin got in touch with me and said the same thing. She, oh, really? <laughs> obviously, you're failing at war on waste, which <laughs> we didn't pick up on, but I'm sure many people were very mad about the, your lack of awareness of that or both of ours. And now they're yeah. gonna, everyone's th- going to be thrilled. It's not just the barista. <laughs> I know. I didn't know that was a thing, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been very good. It's very it thoughtful. Is. Yeah, that's awesome. What's yours? Mine is Adelaide related. So we got a comment from someone on our Instagram um, in Adelaide saying that she was loving the Adelaide content, which surprised me. Um, And I mentioned to her that I would do a happy thought related to the place that we've been focusing so much on. So my happy thought is that Henley Beach is one of my favourite beaches in Australia. It's super clean and quiet and the coastline is so pretty. Um, One of my good friends lived there for a few years and I spent quite a number of weekends there and I have such awesome memories of walking on that beach and of course eating nearby. Um, My favourite was the beach burrito in Glenelg, which I'm sure the locals will be appalled about, but it's pretty good Mexican (laughs) and I'm not going to do a happy thought without some food related. (laughs) That's mine. Very good. That's good. I'm glad you throw in the positive about Adelaide because it's (laughs) been pretty heavy, heavy dark on Adelaide. We have. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the most gripping headlines that I saw when I was there was something related to like a mother duck crossing the road safely. Like it was really <laughs> mellow. So I think yeah. things have definitely changed They've definitely since definitely chilled out since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com and you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime dash podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, and much, much more. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find us as well. Thank you so much to everyone who's left a review this week. Well, that's it for us this week, guys. We'll be back next week with our final episode for season two. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you all then. Yeah, you made it. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.